0: Hello, I'm Chris Kreitchow, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is episode 26, Functional Programming Ideas in Rust. Before we jump in, Parity Technologies is back sponsoring the show again. Parity is advancing the state of the art in decentralized technology. Their flagship software is the Parity Ethereum client, but they're also building cutting-edge tech in areas like WebAssembly and peer-to-peer networking. Their next big project is Polkadot, a platform leveraging blockchain tech for scaling and interop in decentralized systems. Parity uses Rust for its trifecta of safety, speed, and correctness, and they're hiring Rust developers. So if you'd like to work on any of those projects, check out their jobs at paritytech.io jobs. Thanks to Parity for sponsoring the show again. I've been thinking about the relationship between Rust and functional programming Essentially, since the day I first really discovered the language, back in the summer of 2015. As I've mentioned on the show before, I was primed for Rust by reading Pat Brisbane's little book, Maybe Haskell, which uses the maybe type in Haskell, like the option type in Rust, as a very basic introduction to functors and monads and applicatives. That book blew my mind. I had been looking for, and frankly, trying to implement in my own haphazard ways in C and Fortran and Python, the ideas that maybe or option represents. I didn't come away from that little book totally grasping functors or applicatives or monads. In fact, my main takeaway was something more like, wait, you, you can get rid of null once and for all? You can handle it in the type system? Yes! And the growl was included. I was extremely excited. So when I bumped into Rust just a few months later, the fact that option and result existed, along with full-on pattern matching, sold me 100% on the language. I didn't really need any further convincing at that point. I've often described Rust since then as basically what you would get if you mashed together C++ and Haskell. And that combination is really interesting. It's not exactly functional... But it's also not exactly the C++ style of imperative, object-oriented code, either. I've spent a lot of time over the last few years talking about how Rust is both like and unlike C++ here on the show. So today, I thought it would be interesting to tease out some of the ways it's similar to and dissimilar to functional programming languages as a sort of contrast. So I'll start with some of the ways Rust is similar to functional programming languages. A more accurate way to say it might be some of the ways Rust steals good ideas from those functional programming languages. First, like most languages which have been developed over the last few decades, Rust has a bunch of what you might call functional-inspired idioms. The entire iterator API, for example, leans really hard on ideas from functional programming. Functions like map and fold and others in that vein are the most common bits of cross-pollination from functional programming into imperative and object-oriented languages, period. You'll find the same thing in C#s link and Java Stream's APIs, and of course, many similar patterns exist in JavaScript and Python and Ruby and m- much older languages. But this is an inheritance from functional programming in a lot of ways. That being said, Rust borrows a bit more from functional programming languages than a lot of those other languages do in its type system, and its approach to how shared functionality is implemented. Most of the other languages I just mentioned put classes front and center, and they use classes as their primary mechanism for shared behavior. But as we talked about over the past three teaching episodes, Rust doesn't do that. Rust separates its data definitions from the functionality which operates on that data. It puts its traits front and center for shared behavior. In this, Rust is stealing directly from functional programming concepts in general with that separation between data and behavior, and it's stealing from Haskell rather specifically with its notion of type classes as a means of shared behavior. I suspect this is one part of what makes Rust feel a little odd to a lot of people who come to Rust from languages like C++ or or Java or Ruby. But it's a particular delight to me because I, like many others, have found that separation of data from behavior to be useful. Rust just elevates it to a prime feature of the programming language. The other major way that Rust steals from functional programming languages is in its type system. In particular, its enum types are, well, frankly, bog standard in functional programming languages, at least the ones with types. Tagged unions are possible in procedural and object-oriented languages—I have built them myself in C and Python and JavaScript—but they're not first-class citizens of any mainstream imperative or object-oriented language, and they don't have the pattern-matching special sauce that makes them so powerful in Rust or OCaml or any of these other languages— In fact, Rust's enums are probably my favorite of the things that Rust borrows from functional programming languages, because I find them to be a particularly powerful and helpful way of expressing a lot of the kinds of problems I encounter day-to-day in my ordinary programming. So Rust does borrow a lot from functional programming languages, but not everything. What's most interesting to me is that for all of those similarities, Rust doesn't end up being really a functional programming language. It's, it's a language which, having stolen a ton of ideas from functional programming, turns around and adds its own spin on top of them. And the major place this shows up is in Rust's approach to mutability and imperative code, both of which Rust actively embraces, and that's actually really important for getting the kinds of performance characteristics we want to get from Rust, and which we do in fact get from Rust. I've often heard it said by fans of functional programming languages that shared mutable state is the root of all evil. What people mean when they say this is that one of the major causes of bugs in our code, one of the major classes of bugs in our code, is not just logic errors, but shared state that multiple different places in our code base can write to independently of each other shared mutable state makes it harder to track whether the invariants that are supposed to hold for a given piece of data do in fact hold for that piece of data. And of course, functional programming is far from the only programming paradigm to recognize this. There is a good reason, after all, that global mutable state is widely recognized to be a disastrously bad idea in all modern programming languages. In fact, much of what we do in object-oriented styles is really down to managing the scope of mutable state. We encapsulate it into objects and we restrict access to it. When there are specific constraints that have to be upheld for a given data structure, we'll often prevent any direct access to it and instead use methods which perform a mutation but guarantee that they can do that safely. You might think, for example, of a class which wraps a custom queue implementation. The queue could just be an array with indices that track the first and last positions in it. The vector that's backing that has mutable state, but we minimize how we share that mutable state. We don't expose it for others to access. And then we can control how users might add items to the end and pop them off the front of that. Functional programming's insight here is that even this model does often end up causing us problems, not least because as a system grows, it can be difficult to understand, and therefore it can be difficult to continue enforcing those invariants which we intended. What's more, the very statefulness of those data structures can often lead us into places where we have implicit ordering in the sequence of our program. That is, all the steps you have to do to get the data structure into a certain shape, usually in the form of a bunch of method calls which return void, and in good encapsulation form, give us no idea how the data structure underneath it has changed. I've written a lot of code in that style that ended up involving a lot, I'll dare say an absurd amount, of setup to test it. And in the end, I've concluded that that's a pretty big code smell. Functional programming usually solves this problem by just dropping mutability from the equation entirely. It's not a problem to have shared state if that state isn't mutable. Everyone just has a read-only copy of that data, and you create new copies of the data when you need it. Given that, functions can just take in data and hand back new data. They don't have to alter the original, even when they're a transformation of the original. That probably sounds super expensive performance-wise, but... We have pretty smart tools for making that cost a lot less than it seems like it would. And I'll link to some notes on those tools, namely persistent data structures, so that you can check it out if you're unfamiliar with them. I'll also link to a couple persistent data structure libraries in Rust because this idea proves useful in Rust as well. And I find this approach very powerful. It lets me know that if I have a given piece of data, it won't be changed out from underneath me, no matter what function I pass it to. And that means that testing is much simpler. I can just create the data I want to pass in directly, rather than doing some dance to get the right method invocations to happen to get that shape right, hopefully. And all these things are great, but they are expensive. Even when we're using persistent data structures, we can't eliminate some of that overhead. Often. For application-level code, it doesn't end up mattering that much. But in some domains, at some times, it does matter. And at the end of the day, mutation is actually what happens at the level of the memory that we're operating on in a lot of cases, and abstracting over that has a cost, plain and simple. Given all of that, domains where pure functional programming isn't 100% viable— tend to have an awful lot of overlap with the domains where Rust is particularly well-suited for use. Rust doesn't just give up on that insight about shared mutable state, though. Instead, it takes a step back and says, okay, what if we allowed both shared state and mutable state, but never both at the same time, and we always make the relationship there explicit? In other words, we're solving the same problem, but we're coming up with a slightly different solution. Rust- like functional programming languages, will not let us mutate shared state, because, well, all of the things we said above. But it will let us mutate state that isn't shared. The entire point of Rust's ownership rules, and the borrow checker, is to enable this additional way of solving the shared mutable state problem. I said a minute ago that it's not a problem to have shared state if it isn't mutable. But the flip side of that is also true. It's not a problem to have mutable state if it isn't shared. This might at first sound like we're just back to encapsulation land, and that's not totally wrong. Rust does let us keep internal data structures private, and we do lose some of those benefits of the total transparency that you get in purely functional programming. However, the ownership rules go all the way down. In most higher-level languages... Multiple objects can have references to a given data structure at the same time, and as such, they can be calling methods on that data structure independently of each other, which results in independent mutation of the underlying state. Because you can have many layers of indirection in play, that can easily enough happen right under your nose. You can call a method on one object, not realize that it updates some other data structure under the covers, and then call a totally different method on a totally different object, not realizing that it does the same thing, and then you go look at the data that both of them manipulated without your knowing it, and you find yourself scratching your head at how the same value ended up in the target data structure twice or something like that. None of that is true in Rust. If a method is going to mutate inner state on the data structure it's implemented for, it's going to have to take self by mutable reference, and that means that whatever data structure or function is dealing with it has to have a mutable reference to it as well. And per Rust's ownership rules, that has to be a unique mutable reference. We just don't have the problem where multiple different owners acted on a piece of data independently of each other because no piece of data in Rust can have multiple owners like that. Modulo- qualifications around data types like RC and ARC, but there, as I said at the beginning, we've made the shared ownership explicit. Now to make this a little more concrete, let's go back to our custom queue example from a few minutes ago. We might use a VEC deck, I actually don't know how to say that, under the hood, but we would not intentionally expose that in our queue type publicly. In this case, the queue would own the VEC deck, Its implementation would likely have push and pop methods, and both of those would have to take self by mutable reference, those methods. That would mean that if you had two other data structures in your system, which would like access to that queue, they cannot be in one of those states we were talking about a few minutes ago, where one of them still has mutable access to your queue and the other tries to get it. And this means that you can't have that weird thing where a side-effecting operation on one item in your system sneakily updates a data structure behind your back. The type system and ownership rules always make it explicit who's allowed to touch the queue. You'd see right away, or at least soon enough when the compiler told you, that the intermediate data structures both tried to change the underlying data, both tried to take ownership of it. And perhaps most importantly, in terms of ownership reasoning, you'd generally have to arrange that by explicitly passing around the queue, because... Again, you can't have two other data types, which themselves both have mutable references to the same piece of data at the same time. You couldn't even have two other data types where one of them had a reference at all if the other one had a mutable reference to the same piece of data. This doesn't prevent you from making logic errors in this space, of course. You could intentionally get your lifetimes all in a row to make it so that you could doubly insert that data. Or you could use something like an ARC or an RC. But at a minimum, it would be much more obvious that you were doing something like that. And in that way, we've expanded the set of solutions to the shared mutable state is the root of all evil problem, We can write in a pure functional style, and that is often still fairly useful in Rust, but we can also take advantage of controlled mutability. Emphasis here on controlled. I hope you find all of that helpful if you're wondering about the relationship between Rust and functional programming. Certainly the way the two interact has been interesting to me to think about over the past few years, and I take a lot of that back into the other kinds of programming I do, because... When I'm writing JavaScript, well, at the end of the day, I don't have Purity as a language-level construct. I do use it to what extent I can, but it's not there. But that kind of controlled mutability can sometimes help me get away with things under the hood for performance reasons and so on. It's a lot riskier there, though, because I don't have the Rust compiler helping. As always, thank you to everyone who sponsors the show. This month's $10 or more sponsors included... Benam Esfabod, David W. Allen, Derek Buckley, Matt Rudder, Chris Palmer, Vesa Virta, Nick Stevens, Aaron Turon, Dan Abrams, Anthony Deschamps, Chris, Chip, Ryan Osiel, Nathan Scully, Daniel Mason, Martin Hueshober, Rafe Levine, Peter Tillemans, Marshall Clyburn, Sasha Grunert, Alexander Payne, Paul Naranja, Rob Chuk. Zachary Snyder, Daniel Cullen, Hans FialaMark, Olushe Shonaya, Ramon Buckland, John Rudnick, and Damian Stanton. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up ongoing support at Patreon.com/NeuroStation, or you can send a one-off my way at any of a number of other services listed at NeuroStation.com. The show website also has scripts and code samples for most of the teaching episodes, including this one, and transcripts for many of the interviews. And of course I have full show notes for every episode. You can find the notes for this episode at newrestation.com slash show underscore notes. You can find the notes for this episode at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash bonus slash functional underscore No, that's not right either e If you're enjoying the show, I love it when you tell other people about it, whether that's in person, at a meetup, telling people about it on social media, rating and reviewing in a podcast directory, or whatever other way. Maybe you're emailing random acquaintances about it. I don't know, but I do appreciate it. The show's on Twitter, at NeuroStation, and I am there at Chris Kreitchew. Do please send me news information. I like to share it out, especially in the news episodes. You can also respond in the threads on the Rust user forums, on Reddit, Hacker News, Lobsters. And of course, and I know I say this every time, but it's still true every time, you can just send me an email at hello at newrustation.com. Until next time, happy coding. About functional programming ideas in Rust. And I just started recording this episode live. And of course, my cat comes busting into the room to torment me because that's how audio recording works. Get out, cat. Be gone. <laughs>